There's no problem too big or small, no issue too hot or cold, and no subject these gentlemen won't talk about. Let's head into the lab to see what they're working to figure out today. Let's get into it and get down to it. Welcome to Figure It Out. This is George Grombacher. Joining me, as always, is Centauri Miner. Hello, folks. And helping us move from awareness to action this week is Ashley Cammy, the Executive Director of the Arizona Sustainability Alliance. Welcome, Ashley. Thank you. So on the website, it says that your organization is working towards a more verdant, equitable, and sustainable community. Centauri, do you know what verdant means? Um, of, like green landscape or like greenery is that right something lush i'm trying maybe i don't know ashley yep it's a high vocab word for green okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, so i was I, right george yeah i i feel like you'll totally get the uh get a check mark on that one well done all right fair enough uh. Ashley, I, I, I love to, to needle Centauri whenever I can, um, but that's neither here nor there. You have a, a fascinating background, Ashley. So before we hear about your work with the Arizona Sustainability Alliance, we'd love to hear about your background and your career path and how you found yourself where you are. Yeah, sure. So um, I trained as an environmental economist. I worked actually all over the world before I moved to Arizona. So I moved to Arizona five and a half years ago, but I was working for multilateral banks, uh, mostly in Latin America and the Caribbean. I'm a return Peace Corps volunteer from Paraguay. So I speak fluent Spanish and just got really interested in um, conservation and agriculture and the role that that plays in economic development when I was younger. And so I'm one of those people that I basically knew what I wanted to do since I was in fourth grade. So my undergrad's environmental nice. studies, my master's is in international environmental policy, and my doctorate's environmental economics. Um, but yeah, I mean, I really was like more of an environmental, more in general. And then I started taking some undergrad courses in economics and just really loved it as a tool um, to be able to make better decisions about natural resources and things like that. So I sort of went, I went that path and then, um, yeah. And then I ended up moving out to Arizona about five and a half years ago to do my doctorate. And then I started the nonprofit almost three years ago. Excellent. And so it's Dr. Ashley Cammy. Yeah. It, yes, it is. <laughs> Own, <laughs> well, that. Own that. Own sh that. Sh yeah. yeah. Shame on me. All right. So I, I'm, I'm fascinated. I, I was on your LinkedIn profile and I saw that you, and you, you, you mentioned it, but you worked with the World Bank, and I'm one of those people that I have no idea what, in fact, that organization does, <laughs> other than what you just briefly described. It sounds, I, I, you know, I, I, I have no idea. So okay. if. If you could enlighten me. Sure, yeah. So, I mean, the World Bank um, is most known, I think, for giving out low-income loans to different, what they identify as developing countries throughout uh, throughout the world for different types of projects. Those could be agriculture projects. They could be infrastructure projects. And that's really, I mean, the World Bank was established after World War II. It was really about rebuilding Europe. Um, but it's changed quite a bit since then. The reason why I really wanted to work there and something that's a bit of a little known fact is that they're the largest 
one of the largest funders of environmental conservation projects in the world. Um, they receive grants through what's called the Global Environment Facility, which sits in the World Bank, but it's actually its own entity. And it's just, it's a grant making organization. There's, you know, most of the countries in the world are, are party to it. And they donate a certain amount, you know, every so many years, it gets doled out to different countries. And it's a really great um, way to go about doing sort of new pilot projects, scaling up big projects. So, you know, you would have seen like in the news probably, I don't know, five or six years ago, this sort of consolidation of protected areas of hundreds of millions of acres in the Brazilian Amazon, like that gets sort of funneled that way. Um, the other thing that they do that I think is really interesting is a lot of countries don't have the capacity to receive money. So we think, you know, you'll see in the news, oh, Norway donated a billion dollars to Guyana to protect their forest. And, and that's great. But most governments don't actually, they can't actually receive that because of things like auditing and financial services. And so the World Bank acts as a go-between between like the people that want to donate money and the countries that want to receive it to make sure that it's properly like that it's properly adhered to different legislation and fiduciary responsibilities. So it actually plays a lot of different roles. Um, I was just really excited when I was in undergrad. People always were said like, "Oh, the World Bank's horrible. They're destroying the earth." Blah 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 blah. And I'm like, "That's interesting. I wonder if that's true." <laughs> so. I thought I'll go, you know, I'll go work there and like see what what the deal is. So, um, yeah. And then like most places, you know, when you start working somewhere, you learn a lot and realize that they're actually doing some really amazing projects. So nice. Well, I appreciate actually, that. I had no idea. I'd, I'd, I'd be curious to know how many environmental economists are there in the world? That seems like such a like specific <laughs> niche. And like even getting into that field, like are there six of you? I don't tell us more. Three and a half. No, um, <laughs> it's, it's a, it is a burgeoning field. So it it really spun out of, I mean, technically, I probably do more agricultural economics than environmental economics. There's also a field called resource economics, which is similar but different. Um, there, You know, it's growing. Uh, yeah, I would say it's, it's smaller. What I've seen mostly is people come into the field differently. So they'll be really interested in economics. They'll go through their PhD and they're like, oh, the environment's kind of cool. You know, that'd be a cool thing to research. And then they become an environmental economist, whereas I was the opposite. I was like, environmental issues are so interesting and economics is pretty cool. And I kind of like stats. So, you know, that was, it was a different way. Um, but it is a pretty big field. I mean, if you think about anything related to farming in the United States, you know, any kind of policy, any link to agricultural and policy, you know, there's an ag economist behind that, you know, figuring out what should the subsidies be? How should that change over time? You know, like there's always people that are analyzing that information. Um, yeah. Environmental economics, uh, I'm trying to think. I mean, it really like, you know, if you think about like the ozone, I guess that was what in the like 80s, early 90s, when we were thinking about like the ozone hole, and that was a big issue. That's probably when it became more of like, a, you know, an interesting topic that was more formidable, because people were looking at ways to solve it. Um, for me, it's really interesting to think about market based mechanisms for for the environment, right? So how what's the economic incentive to get people to change their behavior? So that like that in itself is not specific to environmental economics, right? A lot of types of economics think about that. So it's just that I think, 
you know, when you're applying it to things like conservation or carbon or things like that, um, you know, that's when environmental economists can play an interesting role in helping policy. So, but there's, you know, there's some of us out there. You'd be surprised. Um, nice. All right. So since fourth grade, this, this is what you were going to do and all these great experiences and getting the doctorate and then founding Arizona, the Arizona Sustainability Alliance. Tell us about why your organization exists, the things you're working on. Yeah. So I don't have a nonprofit background at all. Um, I knew very little about nonprofits before I started AZSA. I, I was actually on the flip side. So my job before I moved out to Arizona, I ran a small grants program. So I gave out the money to nonprofits, like larger nonprofits. And so I'd seen a lot of bad projects and bad project design. Um, so when I moved out to Arizona, I always really like to volunteer where I live. I think oftentimes when you're a student, it's really easy just to go to school and you're in that, you know, you're in your little world of research or whatever, and you kind of, you forget you live in this community. And so I always try and do something. Um, so I started volunteering around mostly Tempe. I'm a Tempe resident and Tempe has, you know, um, ASU, the School of Sustainability. You've got a sustainability commission at the city. There's now a sustainability director. So it's like it's it's at the forefront of, of the discussions being had in the city. And I started sitting in on the meetings um, at the Sustainability Commission. And then I just started poking around because um, I'm one of those people that I'm like, hey, have you thought about this? Or like, why aren't you doing this? And um, I started going to different meetings of, of different nonprofits. And I started to see a gap in what a lot of the other nonprofits were doing. So there's a lot of policy political nonprofits, um, you know, that work at the state level or national level, like a Sierra Club kind of organization, right? And they do really good work. And then there's a lot of chapters of national organizations. So Audubon, Nature Conservancy, and they have very specific issues that may be from that national organization. But there wasn't a, a, an Arizona state-based nonprofit that was looking at sustainability as it sort of from an, a holistic point of view. So how does water intersect with urban agriculture and air pollution, right? We just sort of pick an issue and then that's it. We hyper-focus on the issue and we forget that it's actually interconnected to economic development and health and things like that. And I have a real multidisciplinary background, so I tend to think that way. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I started the nonprofit because I didn't see another organization that was filling that that gap. Um, and so, yeah, so with a little bit of Googling research about nonprofits, I, I went on the ACC website and, and created the Arizona Sustainability Alliance almost three years ago. Nice. I love it. Always, uh, always good to be able to actually identify where the opportunity is. I, I feel like in past conversations that Centauri and I have had, it's sometimes a function that people are just extremely passionate, and, and it's not to, to diminish that, but when somebody has a passion for something, even though there may be overlap, they still move forward with it. But it sounds like that's certainly not the case here. So what what are your priorities? Yeah, so we're a really big nonprofit. So that's interesting, right? So as I mentioned, most organizations maybe, for better or for worse, pick one topic and they sort of drill down into that. We're very broad. Um, we have six different topics that we work on. So our mission is to implement and 
create and support cutting edge project-based sustainability solutions. And we're a project-based nonprofit, which basically means that we're working at the community level. Um, we're a nonpartisan, non-political nonprofit. I firmly, like very strongly believe that these issues impact everyone and that everyone should care. Um, it's really not a, you know, it really doesn't matter who you are. So we have six topics that we identified as the most critical for Arizona. Um, sustainable food systems, urban forestry, renewable energy, urban conservation, education, and water resources management. And realistically, we could probably have a hundred priorities. Like we get asked all the time, why aren't you doing waste? Why aren't you doing sustainable fashion? You know, like, and I get that. Um, there are a lot of needs in Arizona, but these are the ones that we identified as, as the most important to be focusing on. And every one of those topics that we work on has its own strategy and they look completely different. So the work that we do in sustainable food is mostly in schools where the work that we do in urban forestry is mostly with private residents. So it really depends on the topic because the needs are very different. I don't doubt that for a second. And, and Ashley, um, it's a had the great privilege and pleasure of working with your organization in a number of capacities, but I would love for you to give the audience an overview of some of the successful projects that you guys have put on. And then also would love to hear how um, this idea of sustainability is either resonating with uh, like big funders or big corporations in the, in the state, or if people are still kind of putting it as a, as a, a kind of a side priority. So one success and then two, what does the, the conversation look like in the state? Yeah, those are both good question. So yeah, I'll just give you an example really briefly of two projects that we've worked on. So my my sort of method of doing this is pilot, understand the impact, so do surveys or whatever qualitative, you know, way you understand it, and then scale um, to a program. That's a, it's, It tends to be a good model because it allows us to try out new ideas and it gives us some flexibility. So one of the first projects we did when we started the nonprofit is called our Sew It Forward program. So it's putting uh, vertical gardens in low access slash food desert title one grammar schools. And the reason why we shifted that way is that we found that oftentimes gardens, whether they're community gardens or school gardens fail. Um, it take, It's a lot of work and it's a labor of love. And then when it's 120 degrees, they die, everything dies, right? And so it tends to be just really tricky. So we shifted towards these indoor vertical aeroponic gardens. They use 90% less water than a normal school garden would. And it allows the, them to have everything indoors and to move everything from classroom to classroom. And so we started with just two schools, um, both in Tempe. And we did pre and post surveys to see what was sort of what was going on. Our hope was sort of twofold. One, introducing kids to healthy food and just getting them excited about eating food they'd never had before. And then on the other side, growing food. So like that empowerment of like, oh, I can do this. This isn't that hard. Why don't I do this at home? Or why aren't we doing this in other places? So to start to start that conversation. So we definitely saw that in our survey results. But one of the other unexpected co-benefits that we saw that we didn't expect is that Oftentimes, the teachers would give us information that, you know, if a child, for example, was misbehaving, they would send them over to the garden to just like have a timeout by the garden <laughs> for five or 10 minutes, and then they really calmed down significantly. And they started seeing that as a trend. And there's a lot of research that just generally talks about like access to green space and mental health. And so I think on a very small scale, that's what they were seeing. Um, and so we scaled that up. 
We got a grant from ABC slash CVS last year to put one vertical garden in every elementary school in the Fowler Elementary School District. And then we had an outside donor that matched that. And so basically what happens is our volunteers go in, they set up the garden with the teacher. There's a curriculum in English and Spanish that they do with them. And then they have cooking parties. It could be a salad party. They could come in and do different types of lessons. Um, and just to get the kids really excited about growing and eating. And so well, we started with two schools. I think we're in about 30 schools right now. Um, we Most of our projects are in the Phoenix metropolitan area with the exception of a few. And so, so for me, that's a great example of where you do pilot and then, you know, lesson learn, do some more projects. And right now what we're trying to do for 2020 is actually concentrate more of the gardens in the schools so that they can create a farmer's market. So that way, even if the gardens aren't in your classroom, that you can get the vegetables and fruits and herbs from it. So that's where we see it as shifting towards like sustainability. The other thing too is like, it does take a little bit of money to like keep them maintained every year. And so we needed to figure out a way for the teachers to just have like, you know, $50 or something every year that we weren't continuously having to give to them. So, because we do all the fundraising for the schools. And so having that farmer's market then allows them to have that little bit of extra money to buy like the nutrients and things like that. So that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's always really tricky, you know, in schools, the teachers don't have a lot of time um, at all and you want a project to be sustainable on its own, right? You don't want to have AZSA having to keep coming in year after year. You really want them to take ownership and, and that takes time. Um, I think people kind of forget that, you know, they want to do like a one and done project and feel good, but realistically systemic change doesn't work that way. So. No, it sure doesn't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so, so you mentioned that, that you're a nonpartisan organization and, and, and I certainly appreciate that. What, how, how damaging is partisanship to sustainability in general from your perspective? <laughs> to answer that question, you want me to answer the question about how sustained our, our projects are being received across the valley first? Sure. I can answer them both. Um, I mean, they sort of go hand in hand. I mean, in terms of partisanship, yeah, it is damaging. I mean, I I mean, I am probably not, you know, I am I am not uh, what's the word um, the best example or like the average example of Arizona. I'm from the East coast. You know, I moved out to Arizona five and a half years ago. I, you know, even though I came from a super liberal background, you know, I believe that Arizona is a purple state and I sit really in, as an economist, I sit in the middle, right? Like my background is in policy and economics. So, so I might have strong feelings about a certain issue, but how it is implemented is extremely important to me. Extremely. Um, it's everything, right? I mean, the economics feeds the policy or it should, and it often isn't. And so, for sustainability as a whole, it's, I mean, it's invaluable. Um, it, it is, I mean, whenever I talk about sustainability, I actually try not to use that word. It, what resonates more with residents in Arizona is livability. So I talk a lot about, you know, you know, what's happening with increasingly hot days, um, when we're not getting enough water, you know, you still want to be able to live in Arizona and love Arizona. Right. I mean, so how do we make sure that that happens? So to me, it's more about that, right? It's that this is the place you want to be. There are businesses coming to Arizona. There are people moving to Arizona from all over. 
And this has to be like a healthy, happy place for people. And we need to think about that because um, very easy to see, start to see some of those things diminishing, even since I since I moved to Arizona. So, so I think it's really important. And then the second part of that, which kind of links to like how our companies and corporations responding, honestly, really well. Um, I have had great conversations and I think I've seen a shift. Um, so you see a lot of companies and corporations that have cor their, like corporate social responsibility. You know, that's their tracking, the, things like their water usage and their waste. Um, and I think that's become the norm over the last, you know, 10 years. Um, most companies are doing that at this point. And that's great for like internal, you know, proof of improvement. But I started to see as a, a shift with a lot of corporations to have some role in sustainability in their communities. So, for example, Microsoft has been building three data centers um, in Arizona, and we started working with them last year. They actually have a woman, she's based in Seattle, and they have someone in Arizona who is in charge of sustainability in communities just for the data centers, which to me is very unusual. Um, and really wonderful because they're coming and saying, okay, we're moving here. We want to have a role. We want to help. And we don't know that much about what's going on here. So like, can we learn from you what's going on and think about how we as a company can, can help and support that. And that I'm starting to see, um, with a lot of companies that are moving into the state, I'm having a lot of conversations, uh, with different corporations and that's a great space for us because because we're a newer nonprofit and so we can kind of see things I think from a little bit removed from what's been going on for the last 40 or 50 years and help plug in to some of the needs and also because there's a lot of tech companies moving and a lot of our projects are are ag tech or food tech focused um, there's sort of a natural um, relationship I guess well I'm definitely excited to hear that Ashley, where do you see other uh, sustainability or rather livability organizations kind of go awry? So you guys have been very successful, created some great partnerships in the Valley um, and statewide, but there are, as you put it, a ton of nonprofits in this space. Um, where, where do you feel like some of them kind of get off track? And if you were advising them, what would your advice be to the other organizations doing similar work? Yeah, so I think we get really focused and and I'll, I say this knowing that I have a policy background, they get really focused with spending a lot of money, really trying to identify like where are those policy interventions and having been on both sides of that, being a consultant and also hiring consultants, it can take years, years to do those kinds of studies. And if you don't write what you're looking for well, you don't necessarily get what you need. Um, and then it just becomes a report on the shelf, right? So it's like, okay, I've seen that a uh, I've seen that a bit, right? We're doing a lot of strategic planning. We're doing a lot of reports on policy, but I don't, there's a gap between, okay, so we've identified those issues. How are we going to solve them? Who's going to solve them? What does that look like, right? There's this gap. And we're on the other side of the gap saying, hey, we're solving the problems. We don't have the time to spend five years doing a consultant's you know, paper. So we're going to do the problems. But if you had good areas where you could say, hey, if you worked here, you would really have a big impact. That would be great, right? So so I think there's this there's this space, right? So we're on the, okay, you know, we do a, a, a good analysis of what we think the issues are, and then we do projects and we learn from those projects. But there's not a lot of project-based nonprofits. A lot of people are in that policy 
politics space, which I think is needed, but I'm just seeing sort of like a, I don't know, this is like not, things aren't getting done, um, which again, some of these issues are, I would venture to say pretty urgent. Um, you know, the Maricopa is the fastest growing county in the country, right? So you've got all of these people moving here and they need to eat healthy food and they need to <laughs> To walk outside when it's 120 degrees and we have, you know, we have local air pollution issues we face in the winter. Those all need to be addressed like now or really, you know, 10, 15 years ago. But I mean, we don't have the luxury of sort of, I guess, waiting. Um, maybe that's like the New Jersey in me, but I get a little bit impatient with that. And I think, you know, and I think for us also because we're a com community based on profit and we're mostly volunteer run. We have built up so quickly because we have a huge volunteer base that want to do things, right? Because we have projects they can directly plug into. So they feel like they're contributing to their own community. So I think just recognizing that too, that there's this whole, you know, despite what's going on in politics, there's this whole cadre of people that want to just go out and do something, right? And help their local community, whether that's their street or their town or their state and feel like, you know, they're making a difference. So... Yeah, I, I, I totally agree, and I think that people are interested and wanting to get involved and make a difference. So that's that's a great lead-in. So how can people get involved with, with your group, with with your priorities? Yeah, so we are very interesting because we have what we call volunteer staff. So, you know, we have volunteers as well. So we do things like tree plantings. We have a help a farm program. We have a North Mountain that we oversee. So we have those types of opportunities where we get a lot of companies that come, you know, and help with the tree plantings and different volunteers. And that's like a one, you know, it's like once in a while. Um, but our nonprofit is mostly run by volunteer staff. We have about 50 people that volunteer somewhere between 10 and probably about 60 hours a week. And they run every aspect of the nonprofit. So they run our operations, our volunteer management, all of our marketing, our social media, our projects. They write our grants. Um, we, it's pretty amazing. And we're all remote. So we work uh, completely on Slack. So, which is really interesting and it allows people to be wherever they want. You know, we have some people that work full-time jobs that, you know, they jump on at their, on lunch or on the weekend. And then we have other people that work from home. So it really allows a lot of flexibility to get things done. Um, so yeah, I mean, we do bi-monthly volunteer orientations. We have one coming up on January 18th from two to four at the Tempe library, and what we try and do is have our existing volunteers come in and talk about the projects that we're working on. And then we are on Volunteer Match. And then on our website as well, there's a space that says Volunteer Opportunities. And it lists, I mean, there's literally a job description for every one of our volunteer opportunities. And so, and it's pretty diverse. Like it's everything from like run our urban forestry program to like help us do our social media. So it's kind of nice because people with different skill sets come in and can contribute in their own way. Um, our website is ArizonaSustainabilityAlliance.com. So pretty much everything is there. And we're on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram um, at AZ Sustain. And so all of those things are posted there as well. Um, yeah, but it's again, we're like mostly volunteer run at this point, And it's pretty it's pretty interesting. I actually think there's a lot of benefit to us all working remotely. I think there's a lot of efficiency in that. So, well, I appreciate that very much. Satari, anything else? On the show, you 
Perfect. Well, Ashley, thank you again. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And thanks, as always, for listening. Go to ArizonaSustainabilityAlliance.com. Check out all the great opportunities that they have to, uh, to get involved with the group. And then on January 18th, there's the volunteer um, opportunity to go and learn about getting involved as well. And as always, keep questioning because the struggle is real. Before I go, quick announcement. I've been asked by so many people over the past couple of years about how do I start a podcast that I've developed and released a course that will teach you exactly how to do that step-by-step from figuring out the kind of show that you want to have to understanding how all the technology works behind it and then how to get great guests and uh, keep the thing moving and how to grow it. So if you're interested in that, check it out. You can go to georgegrombacher.com forward slash podcast course and you'll find it there. You can just go to the website. I'll also list that in the notes of the show.